Welcome to the Go and Teach Bible Study program presented by the Monta Vista Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to thank you for joining us today as we examine the truth of God's Word and the answers it holds to life's most important questions. If you have questions about this lesson or would like to study further, please contact us at montavistacoc.com. Now let's open our Bibles and study God's Word together. Thanks for tuning in to the Go and Teach radio program. My name is Ryan Goodwin. I preach for the Monta Vista Church of Christ here in Phoenix, Arizona. If you have any questions about our program today, then please reach out to our congregation. We'd love to sit down and have a Bible study with you. If you're curious about God or Son Jesus Christ, if you're curious about the Bible or religion or other spiritual matters, whatever questions you have, we would love to sit down and open up our Bibles together and find answers for you straight from God's Word. Now, if you've got a Bible handy, then turn to the New Testament and look at 2 Peter 1 and verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now, there's a lot of things we could say about this verse, but one thing I really like here is that when it comes to life and godliness, God cares. God wants to give us information. God wants to fill in the blanks and answer our questions. Everything, and I think he means that literally, that everything that helps you to live a godly life can be answered, can be satisfied if you look to God. Now, that doesn't mean we'll always know all the mysteries of the universe or have every single random question answered. But if you want to live a godly life, then everything pertaining to life and godliness has been revealed to us through the Word of God. As it says, through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Now, with all that being said, it shouldn't surprise us then that one of the most important, if not the most important of all human relationships, should have more than a few words written about it in the Bible. What I'm talking about is marriage. From the very beginning, marriage is seen as a fundamental relationship for a human being. When God created Adam in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2, he makes a comment here that, In Genesis 2, verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him, or a companion that's corresponding to him. That God recognized that that of all the creatures in the world, of dogs and cats and horses and whatever else you can think of, as great as those things are, they're not a perfect companion for man. They're not a suitable helper or a helper or companion that corresponds to man's needs. So we read in Genesis chapter 2 that God put Adam to sleep for a little while and took one of his ribs out of him. And from that rib, he crafted a woman, Eve, Adam's wife. 
When Adam wakes up, he sees Eve for the very first time and says in verse 23, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And in verse 24, For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus, later on in Matthew chapter 19, will quote straight from Genesis chapter 2 as he talks about marriage in response to a question that some of his detractors had about that. As I said before, the Bible doesn't just say a few words about marriage. You can find it throughout the Bible. It's an important theme, and God doesn't just use it as just a human relationship or just the vehicle for procreation. No, it goes much deeper than that. In a marriage, a man and a woman become each other's companions. They become one flesh. And God also uses the marriage relationship to explain Christ's relationship to his church. In Ephesians chapter 5 in the New Testament, the church is described as the bride of Christ and Jesus, the bridegroom, the husband. That's how important the marriage relationship is. So here's the reason why I bring all of this up. One of the questions that I get asked very often by young people is, how do I know when I've found the one person that I should marry? How do I know when I've found the one? And in response, a lot of preachers, parents, respected elders, they might give somewhat of a vague response, often involving phrases like, you'll just know, or the right person will find you, or if you're a father, as far as I'm concerned, there's no one who will ever be good enough for you. Rather than avoiding the question, though, we should do our young people a favor and provide some substance to the response. Maybe you're asking the question. Maybe you're the parent of a teenager or a 20-something that's asking you the same question, how do I know when I found the one? Now, I don't think that it's just about physical chemistry or attraction. It's not just about having hobbies or interests that are similar. It's not just about finding somebody who looks like you or talks like you or is from the same background or socioeconomic class as you. It has to be more than that, more substantial. And I would also add more biblical. So, yes, I know this is a Bible radio program. So what I want to do is look at what the Bible has to say about finding companionship. What does the Bible have to say about when do you know you've found the person to marry? How do you identify the person who you ought to marry? But before we get into that, here's a few things to keep in mind first of all. Once you have chosen a person to marry, there is no going back. You've made a decision and that decision is binding in God's eyes. Go to Romans chapter 7. This is in the New Testament here. In Romans chapter 7, notice verse 2. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 now. This is the very next book in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And notice what he has to say here down in verse 10. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord. 
that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not send his wife away. It's clear there that there are two options, that if your marriage is falling apart, you have two options. If you leave, you either stay unmarried the rest of your life, or you be reconciled to your spouse. Once you've married somebody, you can't just change your mind a few years later. It's not like having a boyfriend or a girlfriend in the sense that you can just dump him or her when the affection wears off. A marriage is binding, not just before other people. It is binding before God. Jesus Christ himself had this to say in Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, quoting from Genesis 2, and said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they're no longer two but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. He goes on on into verse 9 to say, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now his disciples say, wow, if the relationship of the man and his wife is like this, it's just better not to marry. And to that Jesus responds in verse 11, not all men can accept this, but only those to whom it's been given. And what he means by that is, yeah, the terms and conditions for marriage are very hard. But God is the one who created marriage. And if you can't accept the terms and conditions that God has laid down for marriage, that is, that it is one man and one woman for life, then it is better not to get married. If you can't accept marriage as God designed it, then you need to spend some time really thinking about why it is that you would even want to be married and revise your priorities. What are you hoping to get out of a marriage? What are you looking for in a husband or wife? What's really important to you? What are your priorities? How do you find the one? So let's consider some really practical and specific things to think about before getting married. Are you looking for a man or woman that fulfills all of these spiritual needs and godly principles? The first one is this, transparency. The right person for you to marry is a man or woman who you can be completely transparent with at all times. You'll not need to feel the need to put on an act around this person. And neither will that person pretend to be someone he or she is not. Marry the person that you have the freedom to be true and genuine with. Romans 12 verse 9 says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Let me read that again. Let love be without hypocrisy. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as well. In Paul's own inspired description of love, he says in verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous. Love doesn't brag, it's not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own. It is not provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, the, the truth. Love rejoices in the true you. Love rejoices in being genuine. Love rejoices in honesty. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. And it endures all things. True love does not require people to be quote-unquote on their game at all times. A few questions for you to think about then. 
Could you still love a person after he's worked a long shift and looks or smells terrible? Could you still love somebody after you've told each other your life stories and you've maybe run out of things to talk about? Would you be comfortable with that person on a three or four hour car trip not really saying anything, not feeling the need to fill the silence with just talking for talking's sake? Can you still love a person when he shows his true colors to you and cries in a movie? Can you still love a person who respects her parents' wishes and dresses to please God and not you? Can you still love a person who will honestly tell you how she feels about your actions? Will you still love a person with physical imperfections or speech impairment? Would you still love a person who does not pretend to like everything about you, including your annoying habits? So much of today's dating culture is centered around appearing to be someone that you are not. But we need to always keep in mind that we're marrying a person, a total and complete person, not just the image that that person has shown to us. You should want to marry someone who makes you feel comfortable enough to be yourself. You shouldn't feel the need to tiptoe around him or her when it comes to certain subjects because marriage should be based on honesty. Beware of the man or woman who doesn't accept advice. Go to the book of Proverbs and notice chapter 9, verses 8 and 9. Do not reprove a scoffer lest he hate you. Reprove a wise man and he'll love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase his learning. Proverbs 27, verse 5 similarly states, Better is open rebuke than love that's concealed. Life can become very sad when you're in a relationship that requires you to wear a fake smile all the time or to live under the weight of looking and talking perfect all the time. It is rightly said in Hebrews 13 verse 4 that the marriage bed is holy. It's just as true that the marriage bed is also honest. You see each other at your very worst. You learn the most intimate and embarrassing habits about people. Without makeup, without shaving, you're snoring, sick in the stomach. How sad would it feel to be so uncomfortable all the time in a marriage that you can't just live normally without feeling judged? One of the beautiful things that we see back in Genesis chapter 2 in that very first marriage, at the end of the chapter it says that the man and the woman were both naked and unashamed. Keep in mind that that's not a verse that's meant to make us snicker or feel embarrassed. It's a verse that's meant to show that in the ideal marriage, You have nothing to hide from each other. There is complete openness, complete honesty, and there is no shame in being exactly who God made you to be. Let's move on to a second quality that you should look for when finding somebody to marry. That is spiritual growth. Proverbs 27 verse 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Does the person that you're with make you want to be better? Do you want to improve your spiritual life because of the influence of that potential mate? And are you influencing your potential mate to become a better person as well? This is the kind of person who's right for you then. There are friends we have who sharpen our character and challenge us to live better each day. They motivate us. They help us to find true and noble goals. Then there are friends who drag us down who make us worse and require very little self-improvement from us to maintain that, re- that relationship. So which one are you? 
If you want to know who the one is, first look in the mirror and see if you are the kind of person that a great, noble, righteous, honest, pure, spiritual, Christian person would even want to marry. In a marriage that's strong, both uh, both partners will keep each other honest by challenging the other. Therefore, marry someone who will help you solve your problems. Marry someone who wants to find solutions. In a marriage, sparks may fly when the iron hits, but the momentary tension results in stronger metal. Iron sharpens iron. Often when we're young, though, we look for a boyfriend or a girlfriend who will complain about their parents as much as we do, who will cooperate in coming up with pranks, schemes, or excuses, who will experiment sexually with us, who will rebel with us. Don't look for that kind of a person. That is not the one that God wants you to marry. A third quality to look for is that you want success for each other. Someone once said that love does not consist in gazing at each other, but looking in the same direction. A good question to ask of a potential mate is, does he or she want me to be all that I can be? Does he or she see my potential? Are you looking for someone who makes you feel like a bigger and better person? The right person will see you as an asset and not a competitor, similar to what God states in Matthew 19 and verse 5, that we're to become one flesh, not two people competing with each other, but one flesh working toward the same goals. A good wife is described as a fellow heir of spiritual blessings in 1 Peter 3 verse 7. She's a helpmeet, Genesis 2 verse 18. Notice that from Proverbs 31 verse 12 that the worthy woman does good for her husband and not evil all the days of her life. And as a result of this, her family trusts in her. They glorify her. Proverbs 31 verse 11. Someone else gave me some advice when I was younger, and that was this. Marry your biggest fan. And when you do get married, be that person's biggest fan. Cheer them on and believe in them when all the world doesn't. When they have ideas, support them in that. The world has enough doubters and enough harsh critics. You have to be, at the very least, that one person in your husband's life, in your wife's life, that's always going to support them. Now, that doesn't mean you're uncritical. It doesn't mean that you let your spouse get away with whatever. It doesn't mean that you let your spouse be irresponsible, to to waste money, to exploit other people, to abuse your children. Obviously, that's not what we're talking about here. But when it comes to the dreams and the goals and the aspirations, when it comes to your husband's potential or your wife's potential, believe in them and support them. God created Eve not just to be a sexual companion, And he didn't just create Eve to be a buddy. Most especially, he did not create Eve just to be a pet or a piece of property. He created Eve from the rib of Adam because Adam needed a companion, a helpmeet that was suitable, that corresponded to him and his needs. And as literally the very first two people on planet Earth They were going to discover everything together. And I highly doubt that they would have gotten very far if they didn't believe in each other. A fourth quality to look for in a potential mate 
is that contentment is as strong as the desire that you feel toward each other. The right guy or girl will be worth waiting for if that's the case. Often we make the mistake of thinking that if we don't rush into marriage, it'll either never happen or he or she will just get bored and marry somebody else. But the one that you should marry is the person who wants to take the time to be patient and enjoy and appreciate every stage of a relationship. Oftentimes people are so eager, so impatient to move on to the next phase of a relationship, they just don't appreciate where they are right then and there. So here's a few things to think about here. Develop the friendship between the two of you. And that friendship is the thing that's going to last a lot longer than any other part of your marriage if it's nurtured right. Remember, you're not going to be newlyweds forever. You're not going to be parents forever. And depending on whatever physical circumstances might come up, you might not even be active sexual partners for the rest of your life. But you will be best friends. You have to be friends. And that part of your marriage is going to last beyond any other part of your marriage. So be patient. Get to know each other. Don't push each other when it comes to sexual things either. Because there are things that couples can do together that are just, that are plain wrong. They're sinful. They're lascivious or inappropriate. Fornication, for example. And also be patient enough to see what the relationship is like after the initial excitement of a, of a new boyfriend or a new girlfriend wears off. That can sometimes be a very deceptive feeling. Now remember the story of Jacob and how he knew that Rachel was worth waiting for, was worth working for, even after seven years. It says in Genesis 29 verse 20, So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. The joy should be now in a relationship, not in the expectation of what comes later. The last point in our radio program is this. Marry a strong Christian. I'll make sure that I qualify that by saying it is an opinion, but I think it's an opinion that's informed by several different concepts that we find in the Bible. First of all, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, the Apostle Paul writes, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship is light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial, or what is a believer in common with an unbeliever? Even though Paul's not directly addressing marriage, I can't think of a relationship that is any more bound together than a husband or a wife. Two people who've become one flesh together and are bound and joined together in the eyes of God. I do want to make it clear, though, that it's not sinful to be married to an unbeliever. There are several passages, including 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and 1 Peter 3 verse 1, that do address the fact that sometimes Christians marry people who are not Christians. And in both of those passages, it doesn't seem like it's described as a sin or that it is inherently wrong somehow for an unbeliever to be married to a believer. But there are warnings built into both of them, such as 1 Corinthians 7 verse 16, that you can't assume that that person will just become a Christian at some point. They have their own free will. They have the freedom to live as they want to live. Now, you hope that your example and your influence will make a difference. 1 Peter 3 verse 1, you hope that your good behavior is going to influence that person to become a Christian someday, but, but that's not a guarantee. 
So with all that being said, a Christian person is going to treat you different than the alternative. They will treat you different because they, they don't see marriage as just a physical thing. They don't see marriage as just a financial or legal arrangement, but it's a spiritual relationship first and foremost. A Christian will understand Ephesians chapter 5. A Christian will understand that the two of you are fellow heirs of the grace of life. And a Christian will understand those things. Now, even some Christians aren't going to be perfect husbands or wives. You may have a discouraging Christian, a miserable Christian, a nasty Christian. So don't look for a Christian in name only. Look for one who truly lives it. My friends, nothing is more important than your spiritual welfare. Nothing. Not marriage, not family, nothing. And more than anything else we've talked about today, the right person to marry is the one who's going to help you get to heaven. Thank you for joining us today. To hear this program again, please visit our website at montavistacoc.com. If you're in the Phoenix area, come visit us at the Montavista Church of Christ. We're located at 2202 North 40th Street. We have Bible classes for all ages each Sunday morning at 9.30 and again on Wednesday night at 7. For more information about the Montavista Church of Christ or to request a personal Bible study, please go to montavistacoc.com. Hallelujah.